It's bad ink jam, but not as we know it. This is bad. neighbors in Mason and surrounding counties. Attention! Be a victor, not a victim. We will be having a beginner's concealed handgun class this coming Wednesday at Keller's Riverside Store on the beautiful Llano River. Classes start at 8.30 a.m. This is an all-day event. We will attempt to teach you all the necessary information you need to obtain your CHL and hopefully when you can use your weapon to defend yourself if the need arises. We also will give you your handgun proficiency test as needed to get your license. The cost for the course is $100. We accept cash, check, credit cards, gold and silver, and used guns. For information or to sign up, call Crockett Keller, 325-347-0055. If you are a socialist liberal and or voted for the current campaigner-in-chief, please do not take this class. You have already proven that you cannot make a knowledgeable and prudent decision as required under the law. Also, if you are a non-Christian Arab or Muslim, I will not teach you the class. Once again, Again, with no shame, I am Crockett Keller, 325-347-0055. Thank you and God bless America. Welcome to the Bookie Bashing Weekly Bashcast, brought to you by BookieBashing.net. This is big, looking at next week's opportunities and last week's profits. This is Bashcast episode number 137. Big game at the Safari Park tonight. It is 19 minutes to 5pm on Thursday, the 11th of April, 2019. Coming up in tonight's Bashcast... Uh, Tom returns from America. We discussed the, an NHL game between the Kings and the Coyotes. It was the Grand National this weekend. We have a look at the opportunities and the reactions that resulted from that. Uh, I've uh, sorted out the value mugs results for the first three months of 2019. And then we look ahead to the US Masters after the break. Um, a story about some stolen cryptocurrency. And uh, Ladbrooks giving professional gamblers the runaround all of that and more coming up in tonight's bashcast u.s masters has uh, started it's like two or three hours in it started at half one so okay it's three hours in if it's three hours in why are the first people only at the 11th hole halfway around after three hours. I can play golf faster than that, albeit not across Augusta. Uh, Justin Harden and Brandon Grace are both at two under at this incredibly early stage, so that doesn't really mean anything. Um, on the flip side of the coin, Angel Cabrera is in last position at five over. Um, Angel Cabrera was at value for the places, but he was 2,500 to 1 to win, so I think there was a bit of optimism there on the exchanges for those places. But we'll come back to the US Masters a little bit later. I was in the dry desert heat of Arizona last week, 
Um, so I missed the Bashcast episode for last Thursday. I was home, but I was so jet lagged. I've been awful this week. Like get like waking up at midnight, just like that, and completely awake, and then just staying up all night. And Sasha has as well. So we've been doing some late night, um, late night Paw Patrol stints until four in the morning. So it was just me and her traveling over there. It was pretty cool on the way out. Um, there was a 28-year-old lad who sat next to Sasha and he had every right to look down at a three-year-old and think, oh, God, I'm sat next to a three-year-old for the entire flight and be pissed off. I would I would be, especially if I was traveling on my own. But actually, he was pretty cool. He sort of helped her with the puzzles and laughed and told her stories all the way. He didn't even have any kids of himself. He was just like an all-around quite good guy. Drank a hell of a lot of alcohol, spent two and a half hours during the middle of the flight up at the the bar in business class before they asked which seat he was in when he said he was uh, in economy. They politely recommended that he go back to his seat and um, spent the latter half of the flight writing love letters to the air, the Irish blonde air stewardess and giving the love letters to Sasha to give to the air stewardess and then getting Sasha to give him give her love sweets as well, love hearts. So I took a photograph of the letter and I've been thinking, would it be weird if I texted him just to ask if she got in touch? It probably would be weird, but he was a nice enough guy and he made the flight to America a lot easier. So hot in America. In, do you get bored of the weather in Arizona? Because it's blue skies. It's like there's a town in Arizona called Yuma that has more sunny days per year than anywhere else on the entire planet. And it's believable. You go over there in mid-March, just every day there isn't a single cloud in the sky. There's no rain. And it's pleasant, 30 degrees heat. So we had a, we drove around me and Sasha in a Mustang, which I got by asking for a complimentary upgrade. And the guy says, uh, no, you, you can't have one, but you can pay for one. When he quoted $300 to upgrade, I was like, no chance. So I uh, spent $50 upgrading to a lesser nice car. And he went out the back and that lesser nice car wasn't there. So we got the Mustang in the end. Ha! That'll teach. The thing about bartering with a tight Scotsman is I don't move from my position. I don't meet in the middle. I know what my upper limit is, and I'm happy to drive the 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 rubbish car if I'm not then spend any more money. If you know what I mean. So uh, it was an easier barter than most. Um, and then my dad's seventieth birthday was at the Greyhawk Golf Club, which was pleasant enough, but I was like asleep by eight p.m. because of the jet lag. Uh, Sasha was just running around. I don't understand how three-year-olds don't get tired traveling across the world, and yet 41-year-old men do. But I was just knackered for the whole thing. And then the third day, we went to see um, the Kings versus the Coyotes in the NHL. This is a, It was kind of like a nothing game. Um, neither team are challenging for the end-of-season playoffs or the Stanley Cups. It's, it's almost like it would be the equivalent of going to see Cardiff versus... Huddersfield or some or Brighton, um, kind of like a bottom of the league clash, um, except there's no relegation in NHL, so it's kind of meaningless. There's not even that. I think they should bring in relegation into American sports. It would make it more interesting because these seem like defunct games, like the stadium was half full. Uh, so I go into it is the University of Arizona F- Stadium, which is right next door to where the Cardinals play. To park in the Cardinals car park. 
walk over to the ground, get to the ground. It's like all the security, metal detectors and everything like that, but I've got two things working in my favour. It's just me carrying Sasha because I'm meeting my sisters and my dad there. Um, so I'm carrying this beautiful sort of three-year-old bo- blonde bombshell cute kid with me who melts everybody's hearts. And then, you know, there are areas of America where they're full of tourists and they're used to British people and Europeans and so on. So New York, Miami, um, Los Angeles, Memphis, Las Vegas. You, you talk with a British accent and it's nothing special in those areas because they're so so touristy. Phoenix isn't so much like that. And Scottsdale, which is the suburb of Phoenix, that my, my sisters used to live there for quite some time. I have twin sisters and they ran a CrossFit gym in Scottsdale and Phoenix, which is why we go over there. Um, but it, there's not that many sort of British tourists over there. So you've got the double whammy of you go through the gate with the cute kid and you then talk with a British accent, kind of like knowing that people are looking at you like you're a little bit USP. And nobody checked my ticket. So I just walked straight in. I spent $300 on tickets for me and my sisters and my brother and my dad and Sasha. And then I went to nobody checked my ticket. I didn't have to spend a penny. And then you go in, the stadium's half full because it's like a, it's not a, a competitive game. It's a, well, it is a, a competitive game, but there's really nothing to play for. It's on a random Tuesday night in April. Um, and so the stadium's half empty. So we could have literally just walked in and chosen some seats to sit on and um, uh, and I could have saved myself $300 had I known. But there you go. Uh, so we sit down for precisely a minute and there's a woman five rows in front of us coming to her seat and the game starts after, you know, we've had the national anthem and some contestant from American Idol singing singing the land of the free on the ice and then she's faffing around with her bag as the game starts and the guy behind me just shouts down in front and she turns around looks at him pauses this is like a 28 year old woman pauses and then just holds both middle fingers up in front of her face at the guy which was which was charmingly aggressive but there was something about... I don't know if it's just, like... Because I'm not used to going to American NHL games or whatever. Like, you get aggression in sports everywhere in the world. But I much prefer something like that over the kind of behaviour you get at Villa Park or at Stoke City or something where it's, like, you know, humorless aggression a lot of the time. I just thought it seemed, it seemed quite funny. So the game finished, um, LA Kings beating the Arizona Coyotes, Coyotes, not Coyotes, God knows why, 3-1. Reading the report, it says here, the the highlight of a scoreless first period was a fist fight between Tyler Clifford and Arizona's Lawson Krause, the penalty minutes leaders for their respective teams. After Krause levelled, Alec Martinez with a check. Clifford went after Kraus and both exchanged punches whilst the crowd roared. And you're not kidding. We're we're two minutes into the game. Your man body checks your other man into the side panelling, which just happens all the time in ice hockey from what I can see. And his teammate, his buddy, took offence to him getting body checked into the panelling. Went over, belted the guy in the face. So they're now just 
turning around, holding each other by the jersey. You know what's about to happen. The referees could stop this. This is a sport invented by insane people because the whole crowd get on their feet and start cheering. Special lights go up and music and, and like, oh, around the stadium. And everyone's anticipating this fight. So even if they decided that the aggression has gone and they didn't want to fight, they now feel compelled to punch each other in the face repeatedly, it's, which is exactly what they did. And they start belting each other in the face and their helmets come off and a bloody nose there. Sasha's sitting there with her hands over her ears and then her hands over her eyes at the spectacle of this violent thing in front of her. Everyone's kind of laughing at it. I don't... It's like a... Ice hockey's like a big joke. It's like flat earthers, I think. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> it's like the, the, the sport probably isn't interesting enough, and so they have a big laugh. But I, th- I think I saw... It. Now, this could be the greatest pub quiz fact of all time, or it could be actually wrong. I can't remember. But I remember someone telling me there are only two team sports in the world that you can get sent off um, that you can that you don't get automatically sent off after you punch a rival in the face. One of them is ice hockey, and the other one is hurling, as far as I understand, which I've never watched hurling in my life. So Sasha was a little bit upset at the sight of two grown men lumping shades out of each other, but she asked where they'd gone, and I told them that they'd been sent to the naughty step, and she accepted that and enjoyed it and started jumping up and down and hoping that more more of the men started fighting so that they would get uh, sent to the naughty step. Um, I think there's part and parcel of just the insanity and the weirdness of ice hockey that they allow this to go on. Um, I can't. They do try and make it quite family-orientated, like they've got these young girls, like cheerleaders, going up and down the steps, you know. It's an ice rink and they're barely wearing anything. It's to catch the... They'll catch their death. It's disgusting. They should cover up these young girls. And the sort of underarm throwing teddy bears and T-shirts to families and children and things like that. So they do, you know, make an effort. And there was one guy, the cheerleader sort of had an underarm throw of a teddy bear to this five-year-old. So, 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 you know, she stood right in front of the five-year-old so the five-year-old could just easily catch it. Five-year-old's going crazy, going, me, 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 throw it to me. And then she throws it, and then the guy leans over behind her, catches the teddy bear in midair, and keeps the teddy bear. So that was his. So, well done, mate. Nice hand-eye coordination. So that was good. The bad news was that when I was in, when I was on my way home, I spent the entire week listening to 97.2 FM. All your country and western needs. Um, including on Sundays, The Gun Show, which talks about gun safety. I don't think anyone's ever thought in Arizona that gun safety could be not having any guns. No, that that thought hasn't crossed anyone's mind. In fact, on the bus between the car rental place and the airport, there are adverts in the bus that say, if you've accidentally left your gun in your luggage and you get to the plane and you obviously can't fly with your gun, Give us a ring and we'll come and collect the gun from you and keep it safe until you return. Like, the problem is that common that people accidentally leave their guns in their luggage. That this company is able to operate. But anyway, on the way back, I get a message from my bank saying that all my bank accounts have been frozen again. And not just that bank, but, you know, I have 
two banks and both banks were frozen. So there's obviously some intercommunication that goes on between the banks because um, uh, people have been um, phoning up pretending to be me again. And then I talked to the banks and they said it is surprising that it's starting, it is continuing to go on. Um, because normally they try and they fail, but this seems to be a dedicated attack. So they said things like, I've got to wipe my computers because of viruses that could be on there and malware and things like that. And I was like, well, what do they know that they shouldn't know? Because, you know, when this happened last time, we changed my cards, we changed all my online passwords. I've got now a security number that I need to get on to online banking. Well, all of those have been deleted again. So I couldn't get on online. I couldn't access any of my cards which is brilliant when I'm away over in Arizona with my three-year-old needing to fill up with petrol. I didn't have access to any money. Um, uh, and all my online passwords now have to change for the third time in two months. And now I can't even... I'm, like, I'm nervous about writing them down, but in all honesty, I can't remember where I am with the passwords anymore. So I need to write it down and hide it somewhere. It's just, um, and then my online social media is now getting hacked as well. So Instagram, Instagram is a place that I share family photographs so that aunties and my mum and people can see it. It's like a personal photograph album. I'm probably a little bit too um, open with what I share there. I shared my son's birth certificate. My mate phoned me up and called me an idiot. Because I'm just leaving myself open to fraudsters. To which my counter-argument was, well, don't let the fraudsters win. Although, I, you know, I did listen to my mate. Because he's probably not as stupid as I am. And I, I took it. I took the birth certificate down. But anyway, um, Instagram. So the last three, well, the last hundred photographs, if you look on my Instagram, are just me snowboarding or pictures of my daughter or my son doing something cute. I think it was Sasha hugging her granddad was the last photograph. I get um I get contacted from Instagram saying they have frozen my Instagram account because of um violent and hateful content that I have been posting on there, which is only that my Facebook has been hacked. And on the same day, my, my Facebook is frozen and everything like that. So someone has got the bee in their bonnet for me. And it's just making life difficult. The, the good news seems to be that whilst these attacks are inconvenient, um, I haven't actually lost any money, I don't think. At least I can't see any money that has been taken. I can't, I can't find a set of money, but that's different from not be, from seeing it being taken. That could mean that I've made a mistake in my accounting somewhere. And the inconveniences of having all my social media frozen and changing my passwords regularly and everything like that. But um, surely they'll get bored soon. Oh, yeah. And so I was when I was driving along in Arizona, someone phoned up. So they're in the hands-free in the car. And they said um, they're from online casino promotions. And it was like it was a woman. And she had uh, all I could tell was that it was a foreign accent. I don't know if it was Asian or Eastern European or whatever. She's from online casino promotions. I wish I'd recorded it. And she said she wanted to confirm if this was my address. And she quoted like an address I, I lived in before. But I was like, okay, um, whatever, yeah. Uh, that could be my address. And then she said, can you confirm whether you're in your your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s? Which is what, yeah, at no point did I actually think that this was anything reasonable. But that was like the strangest question. It's like, why did you ask that? Um, so... 
not thinking quick enough, I just said, no, I can't confirm that. She hung up. I tried to phone back, but then the mobile went dead. So, yeah. Um, I'm not getting any further down the line with these scammers, but they're not leaving me alone. The only annoying thing is when all your cards are frozen, and then you, you're guaranteed that you're, you're going to load up your inbox and there's going to be like 100% £200 from a casino in your inbox. You know what I mean? And you can't partake in it because... All your cards are frozen. And this is like the... I'm on my fourth set of cards this year. So if you add up the amount of time that I have to spend without access to a debit card, that is lost EV. Uh, it's annoying me. Don't know what I can do about it. But it's annoying me. Anyway, where are we? We're at the Grand National on the weekend. That's not... First email I got was an email from Betfred... Uh, subject heading, important account information. Uh, dear Tom, the 2019 Grand National, it's 180 years since the first ever Grand National was held and the race is still as popular as ever. We expect high levels of site traffic before and after the race and want to ensure that we keep our site live so that you can continue to place bets and be part of the action. In order to do this, we may need to limit your bet and balance history statements to the last 24 hours for a period of time. As soon as the site traffic reduces, we will resume normal service for all bet and balance history statements. I mean, I swear to God, the people that write the, these emails are trolling the hell out of us with these subject headers, aren't they? Important account information. Also, it's 2019. Why are we still suffering site issues just with lots of people visiting your site? We have now have... That doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, it does make sense, but it seems quite poor. Doesn't it? The practice of bookmakers emailing us to tell us that they expect online disruption. I mean, having just one day spike in traffic is maybe justification to not invest in an upgrade that would sit idle for most of the year but you've got cloud computing where it's easy to ramp up your resources and so it's probably an issue of the past and it shouldn't be now and they're only covering their their own backsides and managing customer expectations when nothing's going to happen but actually when you got to the afternoon on Last Saturday, most of the sites did go down. Uh, Betfair was struggling. Smarkets was having difficulty. Betfred. So maybe it's easy for me as sort of a non-IT literate person to complain, but it just seemed relatively poor, poor form. We had 40 runners in the Grand National. And the days of targeting extra places now have disappeared along with the... Uh, reduction in quality in the terms so in the days where we were getting six places one to four odds that was good sometimes it was even better than that the bare minimum is five places one to four odds well now we were just getting one to five odds six places everywhere occasionally the only place of one to four odds was bet 365 and because that's only one account that means that you know if you actually looked that's where all the value was. Bet365. There was a smattering at Unibet because there were seven places, but they were still one to five odds. 
but there was hardly anything around anywhere else. And so it now becomes a time versus reward, okay? If you've got your single Bet365 account and a smattering of other bookmakers, how much time do you really want to spend? You know, the length of time between getting on horses is now so long, it's not. It's better to focus energy elsewhere. A couple of years ago, you could sit there and bang out horse after horse after horse after horse. I mean, you could cover the field, you know, two or three times if you needed to, which would result in good profit levels. But that's because the terms were better. And it's because, um, well, believe it or not, the overruns were better as well. So if you take the odds of every horse in the race, uh, and take the reciprocal of each odds to do that, I'll just rewind a little bit. Say something is two to one. In fractional odds, that is three. In probability terms, it's a lot easier sometimes to do mathematics in using probability. What is two to one in probability? Well, it's the reciprocal of three. What do I mean by reciprocal? I mean one divided by three, or if you like, three to the power of minus one. It's the same equation, just structured differently. So one divided by three is 0.33. The probability of two to one in decimal terms decimal probability is 0.33 so if you want to start adding together or subtracting probabilities you take the reciprocal of all of the odds so for the grand national we can take the reciprocal of all 40 horses and add them together and work out what the overround is and compare that to usual now a good rule of thumb is that the overround should be around about one percent for every runner in the field so if there are three horses 103 percent would be fair and that gives the bookmaker like a you know one percent on top of every horse is his margin he's got to pay staff he's got to make a profit he's got a mortgage to pay a bookmaker never isn't an exchange and isn't going to price up a field you know with the true odds or, or the you know realistic odds of an event happening, they have to make a profit, and the profit is about 1% on top of every runner. So an over-round of 103% for a three-runner field. If it's a 10-runner field, you'd be looking at 110%. A 40-runner field like the Grand National, you'd be looking at a fair amount of 140%. Now, if you looked at between 2000 and 2010, it averaged at about 140%. That was fine. Um... But it was 2010 where it jumped up to 155%. That improved to 2015 where it jumped to 165%. And there was a big uproar. There was a big uproar from everybody saying, I can't believe it's 165%. The bookies are taking so much advantage of the poor punter, especially in the Grand National, which is the showcase event of the year. Grand National is a funny one for advantage players because it's almost like the, the bookmakers don't need to throw money at it because so many people are betting on it anyway. With other races that are less high profile, they throw a lot of concessions at it to bring people through the door. The, it, that logic doesn't necessarily apply to the Grand National because so many people are through the door anyway. But there was uproar in 2015 when the, the overround was 165%. The good news for savvy bettors was that if you were sort of picking off the best price at the terms that were on offer in 2015, we're looking at, you know, seven places, one to four, and six, one to four. I think a couple of places even went as far as eight. So you could recover from that hefty overround. But then the terms started getting worse. The overround got 
better. We're still talking 150, 500. It never got better than 150%, really. I mean, two, okay, 2016 was about 148%. And then this year, 2019, it was the second worst ever year. So it was just behind that awful year of 2015, which was nearly 165%. Well, it was 163% at SP this year. But couple that with the fact that the odd, the terms were terrible. So we had, this, the, we had the worst year ever for terms and also the second worst year ever for prices. So the bookmakers are really taking advantage of us now. And it makes it questionable about what the strategy is going to be. I looked at a few other things. I mean, there was a... There were some offers at William Hill, and I monitored them, but they were all rubbish. He had over 20 finishers in the 2019 Grand National. In-shop offered 25 at 8 to 1. Well, the only problem with that is that there have been over 20 finishers for every Grand National back to 1991, where my data ran out. So given that I'm not bolting out of the door for 8 to 1, there was um, a girl rider to win at 33 to 1 which did come in from 50 to 1 to 30 to 1 but by the time it was 30 to 1 they cut it so they were monitoring it really close so despite the fact that it came in it was never actually value because they cut it by the time it was value um there were various awful uh this horse and this horse to finish in the top five the problem with that is that um you can't just multiply the odds together to get an a fair result um you well you because let's say there are five places and the horse, the one horse to finish in there, you've got the lay for that. But then the next horse has only got four positions to fill. So there is going to be less chance of him filling one of those four positions because one are already taken. Albeit, at least you can determine if it's positive expectation doing that method or not. It's just you can't get an accurate figure unless you've got all of the data there. So there were various other things. There was nothing really decent. I followed um, the Emporium value betting, and they actually got the winner of the race before, which meant I was free-rolling the Grand National, but I think I lost a little bit on the Grand National. Tiger Roll winning was a bit of a disaster for anyone other than a casual punter. There were so many doubles that I saw during the day. Tiger Roll to do this and something else to happen. Tiger Roll to do this and Tiger to come top five of the Masters. Tiger Roll to do this. And I don't think I saw a single one of them being positive expectation, but all I kept thinking, a lot of them were for Tiger Roll to place in the top five. It was like, wouldn't it be nice just to bet on these things just so that you've got decent odds on the next event in the double? And then I thought, oh, that's exactly, like, I know what I'm doing and I'm still falling into this trap of this fallacy of, in, of making better odds for me. Actually, on that subject, though, there is one thing that someone pointed out that I quite liked. There were some McElroy doubles, but McElroy to win the Masters and the US Open, or McElroy to win the Masters and the British Open, and McElroy to win the Masters and the US PGA. And they were all flirting at about 99% EV. But the theory the guy came up with was that... I didn't notice this at first. I'd, get, I'd have someone else explain to me what he was doing. And then I was like, oh, yeah, actually, that's fourth dimensional. The theory is that for the second event, the price will come down if Rory wins the Masters, meaning that if he gets through the first leg, it's going to be positive expectation. Uh, and if it loses, it loses, as usual. Therefore, you could argue it might be a positive expectation. But I don't know what I think about this strategy. Yeah, I'm going to mull it over for a little bit longer. Could this be a new avenue? Or have I missed something glaringly obvious here? We will see. But anyway, so not I, I wasn't on Tiger Roll. A few people were. Congratulations if you were. Well done. 
Um, I was on Pleasant Company, who looked like he was doing well for most of it, but didn't get round. It was only really value at Betfred. And even then, at 16 to 1, listen, he's 105% EV. That 105% isn't the same 105% as a as a, an EV from a value mug. This is a slightly different calculation. Uh, I didn't see Tiger being Tiger Roll being that good all day. I mean, again, I'm looking at the tracker now, 101%, but there's only a smattering of horses that seem to be decent. So the Grand National came and went for me. Mostly, like most years, I make something out of the Grand National, and this is the year that I didn't. But that doesn't bother me. I'm making money elsewhere. So it doesn't bother me that much that I'm not making money out of the Grand National. Um, one bookmaker went one to seven odds on the Grand National. They had an advert that said, um, can I bring up the advert here? Grand National free bet for the misses. Get a free £10 win or £5 each way bet on the Grand National for the misses. They're paying seven places, one to seven odds, just to work that out. Take the odds of your 14 to 1 horse. And if that horse places, comes second, you know, you don't get 14 to 1, you get one-seventh of the odds. You get 2 to 1 on that horse. That's your payout for it nearly winning at 14 to 1, but not quite, and coming seventh. The person that did this is a bit of an attention seeker, doing it for a publicity stunt. And because of that, doesn't need to be named or encouraged. All of this just needs to be flushed down the toilet. Where it belongs. So, Tiger Roll was back-to-back. -back, won it in 2018, won it in 2019. One of only three horses to have done that. Uh, Red Rum did it in 1973 and 1974. Reynolds Town did it in 1935 and 1937. So pretty superstar horse um tiger roll the bookmakers do you ever get bored of the amount of sewage pumped our way from them talking about flushing down the toilet the bookmakers always claim that favorites winning is great for the punters and horrible for the bookmakers it's like a cheeky little wink and a nod nod to the camera oh if this horse wins it'll kill us it doesn't make any any sense. Right, here's how I understand bookmakers. Um, bookmakers work. They're making a book, and whilst I know that they can't possibly predict how much liquidity they're going to take and liability they're going to require on each horse, and that's not going to balance each other out, they're going to take more on favourites than on on long shots, very long shots. They, I can understand that they don't take a lot of volume. They also have a large liability because of that. That's how the mathematics work. And also in something like the Grand National, people are going to look at Tiger Roll at four to one and think, you know, every other horse is double figures and I'd rather get a hundred pounds back for my tenner than 50 or 40. So bookmakers themselves hedge their liabilities. They do it on course, they use, um, the machine, Betfair, they, um, they 
they do their own hedging. They even have accounts with each other where they will hedge with each other uh, privately so that they can offload a lot of the liabilities and reduce the risk. That's just how it works. So this notion that a favourite winning can cost bookmakers money is is nonsense. Now, if the bookmaker chooses to wait against a favourite winning, after all, you know, if 4-1 to one is the real odds of Tiger Roll winning this race, then a bookmaker might say, well, what's the reciprocal of 5? It's 0.2. There's an 80% chance that I'm going to not have Tiger Roll win, and that could be good risk management for me. Now, if they choose that, that to have that 80% chance of success and have a loss on Tiger Roll at 4-1, to one, that is their choice. Don't moan about it. You know, if the risk is too much, if they're going to go bankrupt, if the, if anything, then reduce your liabilities. They all do reduce their liabilities and perhaps they weight it so that there's a higher chance that they'll make money if the favourite doesn't win. But it's a choice thing. So never, ever feel sorry or even believe it when you hear this line rolled out time after time but it's boring it's repetitive boring and not true anyway tiger roll one and i was sort of counting the minutes until i heard the first person say how much money it had cost the bookmaking industry here's a racing post article and racing post incidentally you know this isn't an article for amateur once a year punters who don't really understand about offloading liabilities and things like that. This is an article written for people that are in bet shops every single day. It's sort of middle of the ground. It's not your ordinary once-a-year punter. It's not your professional bookie basher either, but it is for the clued-up people. And the headline of this Racing Post article reads, Bookmaker claims Tiger Roll's grand national victory cost the industry... Two hundred and fifty million pounds. A quarter of a billion, a quarter of a billion pound bombshell has landed. Tiger Roll has won back to back and inflicted the most expensive result in Grand National history. A win estimated to have cost the industry two hundred and fifty million pounds. There was, however, a spectrum of reaction from firm to firm, with Paddy Power claiming to actually have won the race. Tiger Roll had been well-backed since his striking success in the cross-country chase at the Cheltenham Festival and was sent off at 4-1, to one, becoming the shortest price winner since Poitlin um, landed odds of 11-4 to four exactly 100 years earlier in, 19, 19, in 1919. Um, Betway's Alan Algas said, the quarter of a billion pound bombshell has landed. Tiger Roll has gone back to back and inflicted the most expensive resulting Grand National. <sighs> People have been backing this horse since he got his head in front last year and he'll go down as the greatest ever result punter. I mean, I can't. There have been a few fav- there have been few favourable results across the week for us bookies, but it was always going to come down to the national, and we've been wiped out. Betfred's Fred Dunn said um, we've been mauled by the tiger once again. There's no doubt this is the costliest result since the legendary Red Rum landed. 
However, when such a fantastic little horse achieves something so special and makes history, we can only pay out with a smile. Oh, there you go. Well, look, he's paying out with a smile. Despite the fact that a quarter of a billion pounds taken out of any industry that featured maybe three or four high street businesses would probably be enough to collapse them. Imagine if a quarter of a billion was taken out of Marks and Spencers, even shops the size of Debenhams or W.H. Smith's. They would, you know, but Fred Dunn is paying out with a smile. Well, good on you, Fred Dunn. Skybet's Michael Shinner said Tiger Roll was well supported through the day. And although the places were kind to bookmakers, it was certainly a great result for punters. Look, you didn't lose a quarter of a billion, but that's where this figure has got. That's embarrassing, quoting a quarter of a billion pounds. And actually, it should be fully audited as well, as far as I'm concerned, because yeah, again, pulling the wool over punter's eyes. Was Alan Alger estimating the liability on um, the liability on Tiger Roll? I was once quite naughty and drunk, and talking to someone that I didn't particularly like and they were showing off their knowledge of gambling because of a five or six way accumulator that they put two pounds on every Saturday and I was a little bit unfriendly and I happen to know that if you added up my liabilities back in the day of every single race that I was betting on there were way more than that I used to keep 40,000 in bet for all the time and I would tie up a lot in liability laying races, you know, £100. I would count laying £100 in a 100 to 1 shot as £10,000. And then if there was another 100 to 1 shot that I was laying, as a tractor goes by outside, outside um, you know, that's shared liability on the exchange. So I'm not, I can lay that for free. In my head, though, if you add up the liabilities, that's 10000 and 10000 And if you add up all the liabilities, I'd actually... Um, placed in the region of 10 million pounds worth of bets in that year now of course i didn't have 10 million pounds to lay on these bets it's shared liability and it's like 40 horses in a race and it's multiple races a week and it's every single saturday but i happen to have worked out that i was just short of 10 million pounds of bets placed in that year so i just came out and told the guy that and i i and I, one, I don't think he believed me. Two, I was achieving nothing trying to show off to a two pound saturday accumulator mug better um but three, it was also quite cheeky of me to do my maths like that because I wasn't really betting, you know, you, only one of those horses could win. So I wasn't betting £10,000 twice. I was using the shared liability. And I just think that Alan Alger has pulled this quarter of a billion pound bombshell out of some kind of twisting of the mathematics of shared liability. Um, Paul Fairhead on Twitter said that I have it on good authority that Ladbrokes and Coral actually won on the national. So that quarter of a billion pound bombshell, quote, looks even crazier now. And uh, I tend to agree. Okay. Uh, Someone got in touch with me. One of the longer members got in touch with me to ask how the betting had been going recently, um, what I thought about it. Now... I have to confess, I have been placing a lot of bets, but I haven't um, been keeping track of what's been going on. Um, The longer that you do this, and I've been doing this for years now, um, the less you notice results. The thing about results is that uh, periods of high variance never last in your favour. 
and periods of high variance never last against you. So losing runs feel bad until you're used to them and winning runs feel great until you're used to them. And then over time, the feelings of excitement at a winning run dampen and the feelings of negativity on a losing run dampen as well, especially managed under bankroll management to a point that I now actually don't even recognize if I'm in a winning run or a losing run anymore. To be fair, I probably recognize when I'm on an extreme winning run, but I couldn't remember the last one. I haven't, you know, so I do record everything, but I don't necessarily plot my graphs. I try and update them on Bookie Bashing every three months or four months. Well, it's been four and a half months since I've done that. The last time was in mid-December and it's now mid-April. What's that? January, February, March, April. I shouldn't need my fingers for that, but I did. So that's four months. So it's time. it was time to update them. And also because this guy got in touch, I was like, oh, I wonder. I mean, I've, I certainly have, have noticed that I haven't had any significant long winning streaks but that doesn't necessarily mean that i'm losing so i plotted the um 2019 chart ev against profit now one of the things about the tracker which is slightly complicated about you know it would be um in, it would be what's the word not incongruous but not indecent either it would be inaccurate to plot a graph of value mugs based on everything that is positive expectation on the tracker for two reasons. One is that hardly anyone will have access to every single account. There will be accounts that you're limited at, there are accounts that I am limited at and that I don't go and place bets. Vernon's a winner, for example. So, um, and then secondly, there is the problem of exclusivity where you know Bournemouth seem to be a team every weekend that are thrown into a load of accumulators well hopefully if you're clever and working under bankroll management you're not just going to blindly back everything with Bournemouth in it but you're going to come to a point where you turn around and say I have enough of Bournemouth and even though this 108% EV figure is coming in I can't I don't want to expose myself anymore to Bournemouth yeah I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that blindly ignore exclusivity, but it's not great practice for one result that could be a coin flip to, you know, ruin your entire weekend and make you lose more than you would ordinarily want to under bankroll management. So for those two reasons, it wouldn't be fair. Um, and a third reason is that I don't actually record the results of anything other than what I'm betting on. Um, now, we are trying to incorporate a backdating results system into the tracker uh, as sort of a longer term project but I reckon you know Lee's so clever at getting these things working that we will get there one day uh, and how we use that to um, um, sort of identify winning and losing runs we'll have to be quite clever about because again this issue that you wouldn't get on everything um, and also there are things you know the, the, the William Hill headline offers are five quid they really only go up on the tracker to identify trading opportunities at the exchanges you see when I work out my um, my bets for these results sheets I'm like what is a fair liability for people to compare their results against you know I might have a bankroll of this i know that there are people out there with you know you know members of bookie bashing that have larger bankrolls than i do yeah there are people out there um with mid hundreds of thousands or higher bankrolls um the question is can they get enough down 
um, to max out the liability that they would require under bankroll management. It would be quite difficult logistically to be on every value bet for thousands, you know. Maybe you can visit a Betfred and get the money down. And sometimes when it's like horse racing, uh, extra place value when you're not hedging, it's a little bit easier. But things like boosts, it's a l- very hard to get thousands down. You know, when Fred's only taking £100 at two to one, you know, you've got to visit five shops to have a £1,000 liability, which isn't impossible. But this is just, you know, what if you want £2,000 liability? It's difficult. So we all have different amounts that we want to achieve um, for bet liability. And then on top of that, um, it's also quite common that a lot of our different bets are going to be worth different amounts. So if you're trying to achieve £300 per bet, sometimes it'll be 200 sometimes 100 sometimes it'll be 500 just by, you know. If it's extreme EV, I would, I'd always, I do push above the average, you know what I mean? Um, keep it interesting. Uh, anyway. I thought a fair number was to achieve £200 liability on average for every bet. And I plotted the graph of what had happened this year. And we started well and then plummeted in January. Uh, We had a bit of a recovery in mid-January, which nearly took us back to zero and then plummeted again. And since then, it's just been plummet city all the way through February and to the middle of March. And then we had a recovery in March, so we made a little bit of money, but not a lot. And then we plummeted again in April. So this year has sucked. Now, I will say this is a sample size of 283 bets. And I have no problem being down after three months and 283 bets. You might say, God damn it, I'm not betting for three months and placing 283 bets and being down. And that is your right. But uh, I'd like to see you beat value betting at, um, at you know, even if you're betting at 140% EV, which would be quite restrictive in terms of the opportunities that you have, um, you're not going to be consistently making profit over 283 bets. The rule of thumb is it's a thousand bets that you have to be looking at when we're betting at about an average of 107% EV is thin value betting. Thousand bets can take a year. You know, I, I'm, I've got, I've done 283 bets in three months. It normally takes me about a year to do a thousand bets. But if you look at all my thousand bet sequences, I'm never down. If you look at my 300 bet sequences, I'm frequently down, um, which I am from the beginning of the year to now. Um, have made a decent amount of EV, which is the good news if you are betting uh, these £283, 283 bets to win £200, you're expected um, value after the first three months of the year was £1,000. So on average, you'd have made £1,000 just out of value motion. We're not talking about touching horse races or casinos or golf or anything like that. Just, so you may think, that's a good number. £1,000 is good. And you may think, I want to make more than that. And you can afford it under bankroll management, or you may think I want to make, I don't know who would think they want to make less than that. But um, sucks to be losing. If you look at the monthly, we had a really good run, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, all in profit. Our last losing month was May 2018, and then we hardly made anything in April. 
And then we had a really bad month, second worst month ever, January 2019. I, I hadn't noticed that. I didn't know that that was the case. February 2019 was back-to-back losing months for the first time uh, in ever. Well, actually, I can't tell. April 2018 is so close to zero. That could be a losing month. And if it is, okay, we did have it last year. But we lost a lot more at the beginning of this year than we did in any two months last year. March was a small amount of profit, and April is in losing again. But plotting the overall graph since the beginning, we've seen a losing one like this before. I'm just going to count how many times. I mean, at the beginning, we went... um, 150 bets from bet zero and we weren't up we were still down and then uh, there's one two three four five six seven eight i can count about eight different times in the last since 2016 where we've had a losing one like this so i'm not concerned it's a little irritating it has been going on for a while i'm fully confident that we will pull out of it it would be nice uh, um so that's just where the value mugs are. But I think just because we're losing, I might just you know move from doing every three months maybe to every two months just to keep an eye on it. Although the summer's coming up where there's not going to be a lot of betting. So we will see. Volume naturally goes down during the summer months. So you see that the summer months are never that extreme. Like 2016 wasn't extreme either way. 2017 wasn't. 2018, even with the World Cup, wasn't too extreme. Um, and that's just because the num- the volume of bets goes down, and with that, the volatility of profit and loss does as well. So we'll monitor that anyway. Okay, we got the U.S. Masters on in the background. Um, now we were talking about difficulty in the places at the Grand National. If you look at horses realistically that have a chance, there's maybe 30, 35 horses if you strike out the long shots. And yet we were struggling to get six places, one, two, three, at one to five odds. You know, most places were five places, one to five odds or similar to that. Well, with the golf, you really could argue that there are, you know, a similar number of players that have a chance of winning the US Masters. There's a lot of players over 1,000, 2,500. These are like um, returning champions like Woosnam and Couples. They don't have a chance of winning it. And if you strike out all the players above 250 to 1, you're left with a comparable number to the Grand National, but the places offered by the firms are significantly better. You've got Fred, six places, 1 to 4. You've got a host of bookmakers who are seven places, 1 to 5, including the Viral Network, who were seven places, 1 to 4, and then changed the terms, naughty boys that you are. Bet365 going eight places, 1 to 5. Paddy Power, Coral, Skybet, and Betfair Sportsbook all going 10 places, 1 to 5. Imagine getting 10 places, 1 to 5 on the Grand National. Imagine getting eight places one to five at Bet365 and how good that would be. And yet, I see a lot of people bemoaning the golf because you have a system in golf where dead heat rules apply on tied places. So what? It doesn't affect equity. It doesn't. Exp- it doesn't affect the. Um, the EV of the bet and also the good news is that on golf you can bet larger amounts you would never find a bookmaker that would take £15,000 liability on a single bet and a golfer in store that is what you know we were maxing out bets all this time all these years at Betfred Coral Ladbrokes you could place you could place a £100 bet each way at 150 to 1 and a lot of them would take it without a phone call 
we sort of trialed we we worked it out by trial and error. It was about fifteen thousand pounds liability. It might be a little bit less now, but what I'm saying is that go and tr- go into a shop and try and get a hundred pounds each way on a horse and see what see what they say, see see what they say when you try and do that. Right. So uh, in terms of opportunity, in terms of volume, in terms of um, terms, um, there is it, it seems to be a no brainer to attack the U.S. Masters. Now, the only irritating thing is that I had noticed in recent years a reduction in value in the magnitude of the odds that's one thing slightly out of our control you can determine what the places and the terms are but you need um you know you need some best prices you need some odds to be pushed out and there had been some reduction in that so over the winter break we had gone to the effort of creating a model that would mitigate the changes that we have seen so what are the what are the changes that we have seen? Well, first of all, despite sort of my observation at the beginning of the segment that um, we were getting better terms than the Grand National, which we are, we're still getting relatively worse terms on the golf than we used to. Secondly, there is less liquidity in the place markets as a direct result of less big money being thrown around from the worst terms. And thirdly, and probably more importantly, there are worse prices in the place markets on the exchange as a result of the presence of significantly more layers. A lot of risk-free match bettors will leapfrog a traded price in order to get their bets matched, and this results in artificially high place markets that pessimistically skew our perception of value. This has been a consistent trend since 2014. Towards the off, there is often panic laying and the price of the top five of the favourites always drifts up towards the morning of a major and then collapses back down by tea time. Um, Looking at a graph of the top five of uh, the place market from the US Masters last year, uh, so I tracked the lay price of Jordan Spieth, Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, Justin Johnson and Justin Rose last year and at eight o'clock in the morning you see a price of you know Justin Rose was as high as 4.6 he collapsed all the way down to 4.2 4.3 at the off um Rory was 4.1 into 3.95 as was Dustin Johnson um Jordan Spieth was 3.65 into 3.45 the consistent trend then was all of the market leaders shortened and the, but none of their outright price the win price shortened it was a direct result of um um more layers than backers being present in that market so we have historically determined the equity of our value bets based on the exchange, but we thought over the winter that the time had come to change this model because of the increasing inefficiencies in the place markets. So we have a model that we created that would estimate lay prices, what they should be for the top five and the top ten. We were looking at the relationships between short price, so zero to fifty, um, medium price 50 to 150 and long price over 150 golfers in the field and we came up with a polynomial relationship based on regression analysis where we were confident that we were getting a good fit based on the data that we have that could estimate what the lay price should be for the top five and the top 10 if the markets were more efficient if there were an equal number of backers and layers um 
in the top five and top 10 markets. So that meant that, you know, with this model, it doesn't mean that if, you know, if there is zero liquidity in the exchanges, we'll still be able to determine a place lay price. And we can do this early before the um, exchange place markets have even opened. We can do it in minor tournaments and we can pick off our value bets um, as long as there's liquidity just in the win market, which there usually is. And if we can get good terms and minor tournaments, this will mean increased volume and miners. And in the majors, we can identify more opportunities. We're no longer blinded by gappy place markets and artificially high place prices. So this model is in beta. We unraveled it for the US Masters. Um, one of the one issue that we have, because it's still in beta, is that there's going to be a number of players who have lopsided place and win expectations. By that, I mean, there's like Matt Kuchar, always plays well, never seems to win. So his top five lay price or his top 10 lay price is skewed relative to his win. He will be quite short in the top five and the top 10, but quite long in the outright because he's always up there, but never actually brings it home. Uh, and on the other extreme, Bubba Watson is either all or nothing. So he tends to win or not make the top 10 and the top five. So his price is skewed in the other direction relative to his win, where he will have a much shorter win price relative to his lay price. Why do you have to beep going over the canal bridge? Why? Why don't you just slow down? Do you know what I mean? Just slow down. You don't have to beep. You're five in the morning. My daughter's window faces the canal bridge. People beep, 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 Idiots. So we unraveled this for the US Masters and what happened, obviously what happened was more liquidity and opportunity came into this golf tournament than any tournament I've seen in the last couple of years, obviously. So there was actually no need to use this model, <laughs> which was simultaneously really cool because we were getting real opportunities based on actual data, which is always prefer more preferable, but also kind of annoying because I was excited about the accuracy of this. I sort of released this in the afternoon and then on Monday and then in the evening all this liquidity came in and I realized that we didn't need it. Well, I'd been monitoring it anyway and it's been really good. The est, for example, right? The estimated lay price for Shane Lowry by my model was 14.4 and the lay price available in the exchange for the top 10 was 14. Uh, for Keith Mitchell, I estimated 13.3, it was 13. Coming for different uh, guys, you've got Brooks Koepka who we estimated at, at six and he was available at six. Point, oh, 6.0 actually was his last traded price in the exchange. So things like that, it seems to be relatively accurate enough. The most important thing is that we identify those players that do have skewed relative, um, prices relative to their win. Because it's not going to be the last time that we see a, a, a major with fewer opportunities because of inefficient place markets. So we will be able to use this. So it's probably just a good tournament to get this tested on real data. Anyway, um... It was really good news that we saw so many opportunities. So there's sort of um, three major lines of attack here. We can target the additional places um, and we can determine equity based on those additional players. So if we don't think the player is going to win, we do think he's going to finish fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. A lot of people think, well, you know, dead heat rules are just going to eradicate the profit there. They're not. EV is EV. You just bet higher. For the same amount of profit that you want on horse racing that's all you do and also we've got significantly higher odds in golf as well um so that exists and 
there are three different strategies to use there the old school of laying the win on full and laying the place on full and you can target the additional place either risk-free not that many risk-free opportunities other than the very very long shots like the 2500 to one guys but um um, who, by the way, you, you couldn't lay a single penny on the win, but because of the discrepancy between the place, even at one to five odds, and what was available on the exchange, it was still an ob. The thing is, I'm not that interested in Wu's number of couples at 2,500 to one. They're not going to finish sixth. Um, so you can lay in full, hoping to get a full payout or positive skewed expectation of the guy finishing sixth. What are his odds of finishing sixth, you might ask? Well, take the probability of him to finish in the top 10 subtract that from the probability of him to finish in the top five and you have the probability of him to finish sixth to tenth assuming for most golfers the opportunity the probability of finishing sixth is equal you know it's an even distribution is equal to the probability of him finishing tenth which is probably true for all but the shortest price golfers um where it's probably a little bit skewed but you just take the probability of him finishing exactly sixth and um Sixth to tenth and divide it by five for sixth and then times that by two if it's two additional places, times it by three if it's three additional places. So we can work out with some relative confidence what that is. You work out your qualifying loss laying on the win in the top five market and we now have implied odds. Implied odds are equal to payout divided by qualifying loss and um, we can work out the EV, the equity, which is the um, real odd, the implied odds divided by the real odds. From the so rewind that if you need the calculation you want to write it down because someone was asking the other day so we've got all of that nailed down and we determined um quite a few golfers to finish in the sorry i was talking about the different strategies that you could have sorry um so there's lane full there's probably my personal preference lay 75 percent uh and that still means that there's nothing worse than trying to be on someone. I remember trying to be on Brooks Koepka to finish sixth. That I had, you know, two hundred pounds each way on him at sixty-six to one, and he won. But I hadn't underlaid at all, and I was in Betfred's kitchen, staff kitchen, counting out twelve thousand pounds of money, and I hadn't made a single penny profit. And I think at that time I decided that I was either going to underlay it, or if there are very few opportunities, just value bet it. I think. So if I'm, if I'm only on a handful of golfers, I'm going to value bet it. But um, that's for the extra places. There's also, you can manipulate the fact that some bookmakers pay out in full for the top five and the top ten. That includes ties. So if the golfer is finishes fifth with two other people, that's tied fifth, tied fifth, tied fifth, and the next position is eighth, right? Now, usually that means that you only get one third of your backstake back and if you're laying you'll have one third of the liability taken away so it evens itself out the ev or the equity calculation isn't any different just because there's dead heats some bookmakers pay in full for ties and there's an exploit there where you can back and lay anything that is close to an arb and if it's tied in the positions you only get a fraction of your liability taken away but you get a full payout at the bookmaker and um, again, you look. We're looking at you know long odds golfers who are like that. Who was it today? There was no one mega short. 
Which is why it's like it's sort of a speculative chance at nothing. But well, it was couples was thirty six thirty five. Imahira was forty one forty. Immelman eighty thirty eight. That's a big old arm. Cabrera sixty one fifty. Bling one hundred one seventy five. Weir one hundred fifty one two hundred fifty. One hundred fifty one hundred fifty. Sorry, and Lyle was two hundred one. 120. So on top of there being big old orbs there, if you actually just take the or calculation of 35 to 1, 40 to 1, 80 to 1, 60 to 100 to 1, 150 to 1, and 200 to 1, you're now on about a 7 to 1 chance of hitting one of those guys to come in the top 5. And if you're getting some decent stakes down, there's no reason why you can't get decent stakes down when you're betting at 150 to 1. Um, then that payout could be significant. So there's definitely an edge to be had there. And then my personal favourite the top 10 overlay now that we're seeing bookmakers offering 10 places and so we had betfair sportsbook paddy power coral and who was the other one skybet offering 10 places in this at one to five odds 10 places is such an extreme amount of places that there are going to be golfers who you can place your each way bet you can place your 10 pound each way bet that's 10 pounds on the win and you get 10 pounds on the place the place is such a good price across 10 places. You could lay it against the 10 place market and you're laying so much you could cover the win party about. What do I mean by that? Well, if a golfer is 100 to 1 at 1 to 5 odds to finish in the top, well, to win with 10 places, 100 to 1. That means his place is 20 to 1. If you look on the top 10 market, if there is a lay of 10 or lower in that top 10 market, then you can essentially lay twice your place stake, covering your win stake. You're not risking anything in the bookmaker and you're going to get a full payout if the golfer wins. That's the important bit here. Or you could it's not an exact odd, but you're only losing a little bit of money. What you're effectively doing is you're pushing out, you're increasing the odds that you're getting, the implied odds that you're getting of the golfer to win. So instead of Ram being 16 to 1, I'm now on him at implied odds of 40 to 1. So EV of over 250% there. Um, some of the guys, uh, Keegan Bradley, I'm on him, I haven't risked a penny. And I know he's 100 to 1, but if he wins it, it's going to be a few thousand back. So we've got the tracker to determine all of the lay prices we're looking at last price matched because i think that's more of a fair assessment than the available leg in these markets that can be very gappy lee's now historically what would happen is that i run a model every three or four hours and i publish the tables on the site lee's now got the automated tracker up and running and so if you've got access to that um it does all of this work but with the big difference that it's live and so if you want to look at it at three in the morning, it's got the prices on the exchange at three in the morning, you know. Up until this year, up until now, it, I post one at 11 p.m. at night. I go to bed. By the time it's six in the morning, that's scrape Those lay prices, they are seven hours out of date. And a lot of the value may be cut because when you're looking at things that fine, we are identifying what are essentially inefficient and um, too high back prices, and so, you know, over seven hours, they do tend to be cut. So having a live tracker, really, really, really useful. Also being able to bet and shop would be useful. Unfortunately, William Hill, who were offering six places, one to five odds, so not even that great anyway, their shop odds were 
across the board and almost every single golfer worse than their online offering which took out um william hill fred were okay just okay nothing more than that that's six places one to four in shop um ladbrooks congratulations on paying five places in the u.s masters well done uh coral were 10 places online see like well can i go to the shop and bet on golf well, to bet on the golf in a Coral shop, you need a Coral Connect card, which is linked to your online account. So they make you, they say, have you got your Coral Connect card? And you go, I don't have one of those. So, okay, well, sign up for it and put your online account name here. And they cross-reference your online account. And if, if that is restricted, you cannot bet on the golf. Now, I ask you a question, who is it that bets in shops? It's the computer illiterate, those people that don't know how to sign up online, use computers, use smartphones and things like that. I know there's fewer and fewer of those people every day, but there are still, you know, the older generation. My dad doesn't know how to sign up to a Coral account. He will go into a betting shop in preference to signing up to an online bookmaker because he understands how that works. So there's plenty of computer illiterate people out there. So what Coral are saying is, oh, no, you need an online account just to bet in a shop now. And it's got to be linked to your Coral Connect card. The other set of people that bet in shops are those that are restricted online. So who is it that Coral are taking money from in shops? Let's look at this Venn diagram. The only people they're taking money from are people that have online accounts. Who has got an online account that works fully and is making a trip to place a bet in a shop? If you've got a working online account, you'd never make the trip to a betting shop. You just place the bet from your sofa. Nobody has an online Coral account that works, gets in the car, drives to the local town, pays for parking, walks into Coral and places a bet over the counter and passes over their Connect card so that you can, they can cross-reference against the health of their online Coral account. The Venn diagram leaves exactly zero people to bet on golf in shop. How is that kind of discrimination fair and open, I ask you, gambling commission? Anyway... I would expect that Coral took next to nothing on the US Masters, and uh, that makes me happy. So there you go. Um, some of the golfers that we identified. So the interesting thing about the top 10 overlay is that the majority of the people at the top the top of the table will be longer odds, but I'm not that interested in them. The Kevin Nars, 200 to 1, risk-free, but he's not going to win. What I actually want to, you know, Aaron Wise, 250 to 1, but he's not going to win. What I'm actually looking for is, by the way, saying that, there's Aaron Wise. He's actually second in the tournament right now. Who's winning? Corey Connors is winning. Wow. Oh, I was talking about him earlier to someone else. So Corey Connors, he, you'll probably know this. If, if he's leading at the end of today, you will know this. But he qualified from a six-person playoff to the, te the Valero Texas Open last week. He'd never played in a tournament that big. He was so happy. He goes to the Texas Open. What does he do? He wins it. And by winning the Texas Open, he qualifies for the US Masters. So not only did he was he a qualifier who went and won at Texas, which was amazing. He's now in the US Masters. He's now top of the leaderboard. That is amazing. I wish I'd placed a bet on him. 
Anyway, uh, this Aaron Rice, 250 to 1. But I, after four rounds, these, these guys will drop away, always. What I'm looking for in the top 10 overlay are the people in double figures. And I just want to eat up every single one of them. So Patrick Cantley, 55 to 1. Charles Howell, the third, 90 to 1. Leishman, 40 to 1. In fact, to prevent overtiming, uh, over after timing. Here are exactly the golfers that I'm on using the overlay method for the US Masters. And these are all, you know, double figure or low triple figure golfers who were pretty much on the track of the entire day. So we've got Matsuyama, Leishman and Kucha, Garcia, Simpson, Cameron, Smith and Scott, Lowry, Woodland, Horschel, Bjergaard, Howell Third, Ram, Cantley, Cameron Smith, again, I accidentally got them twice, Matt, Fitzgerald, Grillo, Nah, Big Poltz, Pepperell, and Keegan Bradley. So any one of them to win the US Masters would be Banana Rama. And then again, it was sort of the same deal with the extra place tracker with value based on the five place market. Most of the people at the top of the field were like Angle Cabrera, 2000 to one, Michael Kim, 2000 to one, Alathabal, 3000 to one. But looking further down, it was mainly Betfred, but at the top of the field, they were holding really good prices for Rory McIlroy, eight to one, six places, one to four. Uh, Dustin Johnson, um, Jordan Spieth. So you know, good on Betfred. Yet again, winning the prize for bookmaker of the moment for these masters. Right, that's probably enough for the first half, guys. You're listening to the Bashcast. And it's brought to you by BookieBashing.net.
and welcome back to the Bashcast. That's Moving Forward by King and Early. Single release 2019. the bookie oh hello it's not finished anymore don't know if that was king or early in the bookie bashing news it's now 8pm I had a little break during the song to put the kids to bed. So Chelsea, Prague are on the television. I got a small DDHH on Olivier Giroud. Who else? Um so if there are any cheers during the game, that will be why. And in the real news, not the bookie bashing news. Julian Assange. He uh one man's hero, another man's Bell End rapist has been arrested. Doesn't look great. So I'm 41. I was 41 over the last couple of weeks since the last Bashcast. He's 47. I know it's a six year age gap. I think that's a big age gap in terms of like you look a lot older when you're 47 than you do when you're 40, like relatively, or 41. Like I think you don't look that much older when you're 37 than when you're 31, but you do when you're 47 than when you're 41. It's a big transition in life. But still, to hide away in the Ecuador... Like, forget the politics of Assange and WikiLeaks and whether you think he needs to be put up on a pedestal and proclaimed a hero for all the libertarian work that he did, or whether you think he's some sort of coward who rapes the women. Whatever you think of him, it doesn't seem to be a sensible life choice to hold yourself away in the Ecuadorian embassy for seven years because there's pictures of him coming out today. He's got like this long grey hair, this long grey beard, withered face, a man that hasn't had a lot of sunlight and hasn't um, hasn't been to a gym in some time. And uh, it wouldn't be my first choice if I released millions of documents that were accusing the US government of all kinds of wrongdoing and also raping the Swedish women. It wouldn't be my wouldn't be my first choice, but there you go. Anyway, in the bookie bashing news, not Julian Assange and the WikiLeaks, but cryptocurrency. Um this was in the news last month on the 4th of March. Cryptocurrency mystery deepens as $143 million from the dead owner's Bitcoin wallet goes missing. Do you have any Bitcoin? I have some Bitcoin. I am no expert in cryptocurrency. I don't think anyone really is. I was really lucky. So, you know, was it last year or the year before? Was it? I can't remember. I think it was 2017. Bitcoin exploded in this upward trajectory and like in three months it multiplied by 20, the value did. Just before that three-month period, I had been thinking of 
buying cryptocurrency for some time. Actually, one of the reasons I wanted to buy cryptocurrency was because I was transferring some shares from people who had um, got stakes in me for some poker tournaments and I had made some money in some poker tournaments and I was uncomfortable transferring all of these bank uh, transfers to everyone of the money that I owed them because not because anyone was doing nobody was doing anything wrong there was nothing illegal it, what, there wasn't even anything shady about what was going on but I hate the fact that the banks are looking at the, my statement and I hate the fact that other people could be looking at these transactions and questioning them because um, it is this whole indictment that there is guilt at the fault of the person before you determine they are innocent. In the land of fraud detection, you are guilty until proven innocent. It is the other way around from the way that law enforcement works. And it doesn't sit very well with me. I think you should always be presumed innocent until, you know, you don't have to be proven, but definitely there are reasonable facts in place to assume that you are up to fraudulent activity and simply playing a poker tournament and selling pieces of myself or a number of poker tournaments and then paying the people that had stakes in me isn't reason for that. And so I saw cryptocurrency perhaps for a long time as a good solution where I could sort of transfer anonymous account, uh, anonymous transfers to people and there wouldn't be anybody snooping at the people that I'm giving money to and nobody would be snooping on me so it all seemed to work very well for me and so um I had this idea that I wanted to get involved in cryptocurrency it took me a long time to get involved and take the plunge but I eventually transferred a small sum of money into bitcoin I'm not joking literally before that explosion in the price in 2017 so I transferred over in July 2017, Bitcoin was around about $2,500 then. Uh, and then it doubled in price in about two months and then went up to nearly $20,000. It was like $18,000. So, okay, it wasn't quite times 20. It was like times seven. But for anyone that says that they know anything about cryptocurrencies. No one knows anything about cryptocurrencies. Nobody does. It's just blind luck whether you're actually catching it at a time where it goes up or it goes down or anything like that. And I was just in the right place at the right time. So it did collapse after that, um, back down to 5,000. So it's still double the price that I bought it at. Anyway, to get cryptocurrencies, you need to keep them in a Bitcoin wallet if you've got Bitcoin. And millions of dollars of cryptocurrency, so Bitcoins and other currencies, were kept in the Quadriga Bitcoin exchange. Quadriga once served as Canada's largest cryptocurrency exchange, but closed operations at the end of July 2019 following the unexpected death of Gerald Cotton, who served as the firm's chief executive. Gerald Cotton died on the 9th of December in India, 
which meant that the Vancouver-based exchange was in, unable to pay its 115,000 customers a grand total of £148 million in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, according to court documents, because Gerald Cotton had sole access to the digital wallets, by which we mean there was one password to access his laptop to access these digital wallets, only he knew the password, and when he died, he took the password with him. Meaning that this single laptop and this single password owned by Gerald Cotton was responsible for the hundreds of millions of pounds that were held in a wallet on there. Can you imagine if a bank ran its business like that? You give a key to the chief executive of the bank, and the chief executive has a password and dies and therefore nobody who banks with the bank can get hold of any money. Accountancy firm Ernst & Young were appointed by the court to oversee the search for the missing funds, but have so far been unable to track down the cryptocurrencies of the six wallets believed to be used, Mr. Cotton, by uh, to store large sums of digital assets offline. Five were found to be empty. A report published by Ernst & Young on the 1st of March stated that the sixth wallet appears to have been used to receive Bitcoin from another cryptocurrency exchange account, though the figure was only a tiny fraction of the missing millions. Mr Cotton's widow, Jennifer Robertson, stated in the report that the funds had been moved to so-called cold storage wallets as a way to protect the coins from hacking or virtual theft. This is a common practice for major cryptocurrency exchanges, though industry experts say it is unusual for the passwords needed to access the COD storage, cold storage wallets, to be kept by just one person. Using a reputable custodian to hold the private keys outside the company is perhaps the best option to ensure the codes are not lost, Eric Wilgenhoff, CCO of the cryptocurrency exchange, be quaint told The Independent in February. A single person owning this information creates a huge vulnerability. In a previous affidavit, Ms. Robertson stated, I do not know the password or recovery key for the wallets. Despite repeated and diligent searches, I have not been able to find them written down anywhere. The mystery may go even deeper. With some Quadriga customers raising questions about the circumstances of Mr. Cotton's death, which was reportedly the result of complications relating to Crohn's disease, there are still a number of suspicion, suspicious circumstances around Gerald Cotton's reported death that need to be looked into. Steve Bunnell, a former U.S. Department of Homeland Security general counsel who now serves as a data security specialist at the LA-based law firm O'Melveny, told The Independent. But regardless of whether the custody of cryptocurrency on Quadrida CX was mismanaged or whether there was something more nefarious involved, the situation highlights the importance for customers of dealing with crypto exchanges that are reputable and know how to safely, safely custody cryptocurrency so there you go if you've got hundreds of millions sitting on an online wallet you may want to check with the wallet if they've got any backup plans in case the COO happens to resign in other news um if you don't follow joseph buckdal um sports betting analyst and skeptic author of squares sharps 
Suckers and Sharks, uh, available on Amazon. It's worth doing. Uh, he's a very knowledgeable sort of officiando in the gambling industry. At one to the letter X, one to the letter X, P-E-R-T, one to expert on Twitter. Um, often posts graphs and analyses. And remember to take everything with a pinch of salt. Not everything that everybody does is right and accurate first time. He posts an interesting one today, in fact, where he's identified a system at Pinnacle Bets where you back uh, closing prices closing on the draws between 3.27 and 3.35, and it shows um, a lot of profit between August 2012 and December 2015. But then if you extrapolate that out to March 2019, you see a lot of loss. And the sample sizes are quite significant. It's 2,800 bets with a or 2,300 bets winning, and then 2,300 bets losing, regressing back to zero. The thing is there that there's no discernible edge, it's just pattern recognition. So can you find in a random data set with no edge on either direction, which is what Pinnacle's closing prices would be, can you find 2,000 bets where there's 160% ROI? Yes, and he found it, and then he found you know in the other direction minus six percent ROI. Um, bring so over five thousand bets, half of it went up, and then half of it went down. Well, the only thing I'd say is that don't think that the argument to that is that um, we need to look at more than one thousand bets because there's no edge there. And when I say um, a thousand bets or more. We're looking at 107% EV, but we're basing that EV on, usually we're basing it on the exchange price, which is probably the most accurate way that you can benchmark equity. Um, regardless, on Pinnacle, uh, Joseph Buthdahl has an article about the problem with data mining in sports betting that is very interesting. By the way, scanning through his Twitter, just before I get there, he's having a spat with Ladbrokes. It's quite funny, actually. <laughs> Where is the spat that he had with... with uh... Excuse me. Yeah, it starts here. Um, he's tweeted, he's DM'd Ladbrokes uh, and said, um, how long do you think that this is supposed to take, whatever his spat's about? What should actually happen is that your customer services department rings up the affiliate team in Tel Aviv to ask why is this affiliate complaining about lost referred customers on his account. Then they explain the reason why, which is one, we have a software issue and are trying to fix it. Two, we have forgotten to do it and we are working on it now. Three, we can't be bothered and hope the affiliate goes away. Or four, we don't know what this affiliate is talking about. Customer services then report back to me with the information. This should take 10 minutes of time, not two months during which time the only meaningful response I've ever had is that your affiliate team operates a strict queue system. How long is this queue? How many affiliates are in the queue complaining about the same thing? Can you not see that the two conclusions anyone can draw from this saga is that your company is either completely incompetent for failing to address a client's concern or corrupt for failing to honour published terms and conditions? And Ladbrokes' reply to that is, hey Joseph, thanks for your message. Could you DM us with your full name, date of birth, email address and ad <laughs> we will look into this. And Joseph Bookdale says, robots. That's exactly what your main Twitter handle said to me and still nothing has been done you're inept or corrupt and then he kind of loses it a bit but it's funny he says, 
This is like a series of tweets afterwards. You lot just don't care. You're just jobs worth pushing buttons to earn a salary. The Ladbrook brand stinks now. Disappeared from BetBrain. Disappeared from Odds Portal. Both told me because they gave up trying to get you to fix your stuff. Your affiliate program is broken. You ban customers at will without notice or rationale. You restricted mine for bonus abuse, even though I never used the bonuses. Then two months later, despite not placing another bet in the meantime, you just closed it. And then the next reason, your customer service system is broken. Your company is a total disgrace to capitalism. I feel ashamed to believe in the economic system when it allows companies like yours to operate. And then he links like three, four media articles, um, which are like from the Independent, like uh, Ladbrook slapped with a fine. And then he says, Jesus, even you, if you simply said to me, fuck off, Joe, we're busy trying to fix this problem or find out what it is that you have a problem about. At least that would be something, but you can't even be asked to do that. And then uh, on the 28th of March, 2018, GVC Holdings completed the acquisition of Ladbrokes Coral, the creation of one of the world's largest uh, sports betting companies. It is truly an exciting prospect. And then he um, publishes the graph of their um, share price, uh, which has collapsed from... 1,200 at the time of the acquisition, all the way through the end of 2018. Uh, it halved in money and then keep kept on dropping. And as of now, it looks like it's at about 500 from being a high of 1,200. So it's more than halved. Anyway, that isn't even what I was talking about. I just noticed that on his timeline. It was funny. He's having a right rant. It's, like, it's so annoying when dealing with customer service agents that just repeat exactly the same thing. Can you DM your full name? Like, I had a problem with Kaching. I still have a problem with Nectan in that there's some error, and the only code that I'm getting is 517 when I try and deposit. Now, I'm not banned at Nectan, and I'm not restricted, and I'm, I don't have any... Um, deposit limits and it doesn't even get as far as checking with like you know when you deposit into a bookmaker you get the safe deposit or secure deposit or something like that splash screen that comes up where it has to think about whether it wants to ask you further information it doesn't even sort of seem to interrogate my bank it simply um comes back with there has been a 507 error so i got in contact with customer service and i said customer service i've got this error and they said what is your email address and the answer to your secret question by the way i love when they ask you that and you don't they don't even bother to tell you what your secret question is they just like <laughs> what's the answer to it so you've got to guess whether it was your primary school or your first pet anyway i tell them and what's the answer could i please clear the cash and my cookies well the problem is this happened on my PC and my Mac and my laptop and my phone. So if there's a problem with them cashing my cookies, it's across all of those things. But I give them the credit, benefit of the doubt. And by the way, clearing all of those things is a right pain because it sort of gets rid of all of the like pre-fill forms in some of the pages that you visit that you may want to wish. And it's really inconvenient to be asked to clear your cash and your cookies. But I did, and it didn't work. So I told them it didn't work, and then they replied, could you please confirm your email address and your answer to your secret question. It was like, but, oh God, every time we talk, are we going to have to go through this? And it was, it was like five times backwards and forwards. So I, I answered it and then they said, what's the problem? So I'm getting the code 507. What's the answer? 
Could you clear your cache and your cookies? I said, I have cleared your cache and your cookies. She's like, could you please try again? So maybe they've tweaked something. So I tried for a second time. It didn't work. So I told them they didn't work. And what was the reply? What is your email address and your address and your date of birth and the answer to your secret question? And I replied, I've already told you that. Look down. And they said they couldn't continue without that information. So I gave them the information. And after a week of being silent, I nudged them in the right direction. I said, look, you haven't said anything for a week. What's the uh, reply to this question? And the reply was, what is your address, date of birth, and your secret question? So I said that. They went away for a couple of days, came back and asked me seriously to clear my cash and my cookies. So I then told them I was leaving uh, and to close my account and because I'm totally dissatisfied on this. And surprise, surprise, the reply to that was that a £20 bonus has been put in my account. They're dreadfully sorry and they're going to look into it. And then the next day I was told that it should be fine and I tried it and it worked and that was okay. And then the day after I tried it and I have exactly the same 507 and now I can't be bothered to complain to them because all I'm going to get back is what is your email address, your address, your date of birth and the answer to your secret question. The problem with data mining in sports betting. Using data as part of a betting strategy is common practice. However, as impressive as some results may appear, the process of procuring, sorry, producing results is the important part. What are the problems with data mining in sports betting? So this is the article on Pinnacle by Joseph Buckdahl. Over the past few months, I've come across a sizable number of websites, blogs, and forum posts which claim to have uncovered profitable betting systems simply from retrospectively applying a few seemingly arbitrary selection criteria to a large data set of historical results and betting odds. In this article, I investigate the pitfalls of searching for a profitable advantage via data mining. For the sports better, correlation without causation spells trouble. I want to highlight, first of all, and most importantly, the report I wrote that was retweeted by Joseph Buckdahl over betting on smart money and steamers. We had correlation with causation. There was no problem there. But there's a lot of people who will say the pattern is to bet on XYZ and there is no reason, proof, or rhyme about why logically that would be the case. All they've done is identified a pattern without proving um, or suggesting any reason why the pattern may exist. Data mining involves the process of analyzing large data sets to uncover patterns and information. More specifically, the task of data dredging is the use of data mining to uncover patterns in that data, which can be represented as statistically significant, sports betting itself lends itself easily to data mining and dredging. Various websites make large volumes of historical football results and betting odds available for the purposes of retrospectively searching for and testing profitable betting systems. The major limitation of using this as a data analysis tool, however, is that priori hypotheses to account for why those patterns might have occurred are typically not proposed. For a betting system to be valid and really doing what it is supposed to be doing, we must have some idea about what causes its success in the first place. Unless you establish the causation behind the correlation, you will have no idea what might cause your correlation to break down. 
correlation without causation is meaningless. So is there hidden value in English League Two soccer? On my Twitter feed a few weeks ago, Bookdahl says, my attention was drawn to the outstanding returns one could have realised by blindly betting on all away wins in English League Two from 2012-13 to 2016-17 inclusive, approaching 3,000 wages, amounting to 4.3% from closing pinnacle odds and nearly 10% from best market prices. Only one of those five seasons witnessed a loss to pinnacle's closing prices, and that was small. Profit chart looks like this. Profit chart is a... Uh, a line going up to the top hand right of the graph. The suggestion was that the market was undervaluing away teams in this division. That is to say that they were overpriced. This is not some short term aberration, however, rather it would appeared to be a consistent and systematic error in the way that betters had underestimated the likelihood of away wins in English League Two, far beyond the boundaries of a bookmaker's profit margin. But can we really believe there is anything causal to be found here? Another strategy I've seen is called back in the draw. It claims to have returned a 16% profit over turnover from 2,500 wages when tested retrospectively to soccer results and pinnacle match betting odds to 2012. Whew. That's Giroud. William, Giroud was, was open. The selection criteria are simple. Neither team should have drawn in the previous three games. Odds should be in the range of 3.2 to 3.56. Testing the, sig- t- testing the statistical significance of this profit, we find that record is indeed exceptional. We could expect such a level of profitability from these odds to occur, perhaps just one in a million times or less, assuming the pattern to be nothing but random. One might ask why these particular criteria have been chosen. Why not the previous four, five, or six games? Why not odds of 3.07 to 3.41 or 3.13 to 3.72? I mute the Mac. Of course, these criteria were almost certainly not chosen before the data were mined. They were simply found to have produced the profitable outcome they did. And we can't retrofit an explanation on the back of an outcome since this is turning causality on its head. In defence of this strategy, you might now also say one in a million. Surely that must mean it isn't random, right? Well, true. However, if we have a million strategies to test and we find one of them to be statistically significant, what is that telling us? As Nassim Taleb, in Fooled by Randomness, narrates on the fantasy of monkeys attempting to recreate the poetry of Homer on a typewriter if there are five monkeys in the game. I would be rather impressed with the Iliad writer to the point of suspecting him to be a reincarnation of the ancient poet. If there are a billion to the power of one billion monkeys, I would be less impressed. As Taleb points out, not many people bother to count all the monkeys. And if they did, barely any of them would make interesting patterns worth talking about. Survivorship bias ensures that we only get to see the winners. So why betters need to count the monkeys? If we don't propose priori hypotheses before dredging our data in search of a profitable pattern, then instead... We should test a large number of betting systems to see how often we find statistical significance. 
As I replied to this discussion on my Twitter feed, let's plot the distribution of yields from 10,000 samples of blind bets selected according to 10,000 different criteria and see what it looks like. Well, I couldn't find 10,000 samples of blind bets of suitable size. That would involve a lot of data, but rather 1,686 of them of 100 wages or more. Each sample represented a season of blind betting on a particular result, home draw or away for a single soccer league over a single season. Having removed Pinnacle's profit margin to calculate the true prices of each outcome, I then calculated the theoretical returns for each sample and their t-statistic, my preferred measure of how unlikely such returns could arise by chance. Those of you familiar with normal distribution will recognize the graph that he plots as evidence of randomness. That is to say, the performance of these samples of blind bets conforms closely to what we would expect to happen if everything was subject to chance only. Taken as a whole, there is evidently little or nothing systematic happening at all. Those profitable seasons in English League 2 were most probably just lucky performances uncovered by messing around with data and stumbling upon something that looked like a profitable pattern caused by systematically irrational better or bookmaker behavior. The true odds returns for the five seasons taken together would have a t-score of plus 2.4 implying about 1 in 100 probability that it would happen by chance. Statistically that is significant and if we were publishing an academic paper about it in isolation we would be motivated to call it something real. But we know that from analysing the bigger picture, it almost certainly isn't. It's just blind luck. In fact, a sample from the 2007-8 season for English League 2 performed even better. The 242 matches for which I have data for from December through to May showed a theoretical profit of over 29%. Such a performance could be expected about one in a thousand times. In total, 837, or about half of them, were profitable to true odds just as expected. In such a sample of samples, we would naturally expect the best one to show a p-value of around 1 in 1686. We'd expect about 16 of the samples to have p-values of less than 1 in 100. Similarly, we'd expect about 10% to have p-values of less than 1 in 10. Anything different? And we might rightly wonder if any of them were being influenced by anything other than luck. In fact... There were 15 and 158 respectively, pretty close to expectation. Essentially, the analysis is another way of saying that almost everything that we are looking at has arisen because of chance and chance only. Yes, a 1 in 1000 profitability is impressive. But if we have over 1,000 samples to choose from, it's not unexpected. In fact, it's likely, and it's not strong evidence of anything casual. So what can bettors learn about data mining and dredging? It's perhaps not unsurprising that the distribution of profitability by seasonal soccer division is random. It's hardly the most sophisticated means of devising a betting system. But the significant point is this. If we set about devising a betting system via data dredging until we find criteria that are profitable, we risk failing to establish casual explanations for what we find. Unless we have a reason for why that profit happened, it might as well be complete rubbish. Correlation without causation simply regresses to the mean. 
For a sports better, that means losing money over the long run. One might argue there's nothing wrong in taking advantage of luck to make a profit. After all, that's what betting is all about. When we do that, however, we shouldn't deceive ourselves by assuming that our success is a consequence of anything else at all. Look, you're not going to be picking a fight, Dad. Dad, Dad, Daddy-o. What's coming up this weekend? Most of the weekend, my weekend, will be spent with the Masters on the television. I reckon probably my favourite sporting event on the TV of the year. See if this Connors guy. This Connors was winning it. Qualified to the Texas Open. And is now winning the Masters. What a story. But in the Premiership, um, the tune of playing Leicester. can't believe we're 5.7 on the exchange. Friday night game. Solid. Saturday, we got our Saturdays back. Tottenham, Hot- Tottenham Huddersfield are at lunchtime. Usually that conflicts with um, any planning about dutching the William Hill horse race. But it looks like the William Hill horse race may be no more. So RIP the big William Hill Saturday horse race. Don't be sad that it's over. Be happy that it happened at all. In the evening on Saturday, Man United West Ham. Two games on Sunday, Crystal Palace, Man City and Liverpool, Chelsea. Um, followed by, I presume, the Champions League coming back uh, next week. It is. The reverse um, get um, ties for Barcelona, Man United, Juventus, Ajax, Man City, Tottenham, Porto, and Liverpool. Um, it's still nil-nil in Slavia Park, Chelsea. I'm going to finish the Basscast and enjoy the last 15 minutes of this. Though, whatever it is that you're betting on, do make sure it's fine. This is Tom, signing out. This is big. Did you close fucking swing, man?